over a large population, over a large area, you can start taking some statistics and saying, yes, if you have so many trees, then people will live longer, the quality of life will be higher, and their health will be much better. And quite honestly, that's one of the things we're aiming for. Creating Green Cities, the podcast about urban nature-based solutions. We feature stories from people and projects that are greening Europe's cities with their ideas and initiatives. Welcome to the second episode of our podcast created by the Ecologic Institute as part of the Naturevation Project. Currently, more than 50% of the global population lives in cities. Well, after all, they're attractive places to live and offer both job opportunities and cultural experiences. At the same time, increasing urbanisation is putting pressure on cities and causing a range of urban sustainability challenges such as air pollution, congestion or lack of access to green spaces. Urban nature-based solutions can help address some of these challenges. In the first episode of the Creating Green Cities podcast, we heard from urban innovators in Sweden about the diverse benefits provided by nature-based solutions and their ability to address environmental, social or economic challenges. Understanding the value of these benefits is important if such solutions are to be considered in decision-making processes as a viable alternative to more traditional, business-as-usual, grey infrastructure solutions. But how exactly can the impact of nature-based solutions be measured? A number of different approaches exist to assess their contribution to urban sustainability challenges. Depending on how the natural solutions are going to be assessed and for what purpose, impacts can be collected in the form of quantitative, qualitative or even monetary values. Today's episode will be dedicated to the opportunities and challenges of monitoring and assessing nature-based solutions. To understand those aspects better, we'll hear from two initiatives in Spain and the Netherlands. Let's start with Gabino Caballo from the municipality of Barcelona. Gabino oversees the city's Tree Master Plan, a strategy to increase the size and quality of the city's green cover. As he puts it, We look after everything that is green, so to speak. Gabino explains the benefits that trees bring to the city. The main things and the, the most obvious thing for, for trees in, in the city of Barcelona is definitely shade. Um, they create a huge canopy over um, the main streets. Um, they, they, and they basically lower the temperature at street level, making habitable in summer and uh, also civilize a space that otherwise will be quite harsh. But also they do things like the uh, capture dust, the capture particles, the capture... We, we believe that they help um, dissipate the effects of contamination. And they also provide um, psychologically there are clear benefits to having greenery um, across the city. And at different levels, whether you're in the street or you are in the third floor in your house, um, you have this green canopy that is providing a service that, unfortunately, the, the, the urban development of Barcelona is not providing, which is that of having green views, having green landscapes. Also, we're finding lately that it, it helps in our strategy, fighting climate change. Uh, it helps to stabilize the, the climate in the city. We, we decided that trees uh, have a presence of their own, have a value of their own, and have a personality of their own. And in fact, the document starts with... Uh, uh, our neighbors, the trees. So um, they've, they've become by themselves in, in, in a form of separate green infrastructure within the city. And that's why we decided that they deserved a strategy that was devoted to them. 
As part of the strategy, the municipality of Barcelona is responsible for managing a huge number of trees in the city. But is the monitoring of so many trees even possible? Monitoring, for instance, uh, we've been doing for a number of years. We had a, a, a dedicated unit to tree assessment. They basically check on the trees in a four-year cycle. We have in the streets, we have some, somewhere in the region of 200,000 trees uh, that we manage, plus 50,000 trees in parks. So it's almost a quarter of a million trees that we manage directly in the urban in the urban area. We've got way more um, in, in, in the actual local authority. It comes up to uh, 1.4 million trees. We don't manage all of them. But we do check on the trees in the streets heavily for a security reason. Monitoring the trees in Barcelona and the surrounding region creates a lot of data. In the case of the tree master plan, this data is collected and evaluated as far as possible in order to measure the progress and figure out what's working well or what can be improved upon. Making a huge effort in data collection. Um, up until now, we've been collecting data on the green space itself and the number of trees that we have. That kind of data is very useful in the day-to-day management to, to know what you're doing and what you're not doing. Until recently, we started changing our approach. One of the things we've started doing is instead of concentrating on having um, very many trees, for instance, and that is something that's come about with the, the change in data, is um, start measuring the amount of green, green cover, tree cover that we have in the city. And we've started, started using um, systems like NDVI, uh, leader systems like that, to measure uh, green cover in the city. Um, so we are trying to use that data to create different indicators of how we uh, advance and proceed and also use it as a benchmark or some kind of um, figure that we can use in uh, measuring um, infrastructure services, ecosystemic, ecosystemic services. But it's something that's under development. But that data at the moment is not, um, I don't think we can say it's systematically organized. We are collecting it as best as we can. Sometimes when we work, for instance, with universities, and there is uh, scientific support to our, to our work. That data is collected and is, is actually resulted in a couple of uh, scientific papers that have been re- recently published on the benefits of trees in the city, for instance. But other areas of work, we do not have this kind of support. We always have to bear in mind that our main function is to actually keep the green, green space functioning, ticking in good condition and safe condition. So we are biased in that, in that respect, that our collection of data is relatively selective. Managing such large amounts of data brings many challenges, as Gabino reports. He recommends municipal experts embarking on a similar monitoring exercise to inform themselves about possible tools and methods before deciding on how to collect and manage data in their city. One of the things we've been doing is collecting data in a proprietary system, which is now reaching its limits. Probably we should have looked at options before we committed to um, such a closed system. That is one thing. Now, nowadays, if you start a new, there are a lot more options. Um, geographical information systems come to mind. We have a proprietary geographical information system, but it's a little bit of a closed um, closed loop. And, and it makes it difficult sharing information and makes it difficult exchanging information. So that's, that's one thing to say before you commit to collecting, gathering data, be very, very, um, very sure about what platform you're going to use, the data, data sets you're going to create and how you're going to visualize it and share it. Theoretically, we should be moving towards a data-driven decision-making process where, where data leads your decision-making process. 
But that is proving quite difficult to organize because there's always a problem at the point of access. When you want to get a very concrete measure of something, you haven't predefined the data set, you don't get the answers you want and you don't get the information you want. So it looks like there's a lot of prior work to do uh, before you can actually organize uh, information in a cohesive or coherent way but to use it later. Um, that seems to be one of the main limitations. Data as such has many forms and the way you access it seems to have even more forms. And also from a maintenance point of view, from a point of view of um, people who are working on the, on the territory, it's quite strange because when you look at data for us, it has a value and a meaning. Um, when you are talking about science, it seems to have another, it's, it's another set of um, information. It's not exactly, they're not interested, scientists are not interested exactly in the same things. And then there is an area in between where you could say is the lies the applied science, which I think is really useful to us because it helps us to actually make decisions better. So we're a, li we're a little bit caught between those two extremes, the, the data we need to our, for our day-to-day -day, um, work, and then the data that is considered scientifically valid. And tell people trying to, to initiate this kind of exercise to look very much into these sort of um, properties of data, the kind of data they're generating, the kind of data they're collecting, who are they collecting it with, and uh, who's going to be accessing and what kind of questions are going to be ask and answer. What we can learn from Gabino's story is that many assessment methods require specific expertise when it comes to extracting and analysing the data. In the case of the Barcelona Tree Master Plan, the municipality collects and analyses a lot of data. Ideally, the data collected should meet the different information needs of scientists, practitioners and policy or decision makers. But what is the aim of all these monitoring and assessment activities in practice? Gabino explains how he would like to use the data and information that the municipality collects in the future. The benefits from having trees in your street and we can say now with data in our hands, uh, scientific data, independent research is uh, tangible research. The benefits of the city are clear in terms of health. So we can start quantifying, you know, the amount of money that you spend in green space management, in green space conservation, has a direct effect on the health budget. That's one line uh, we're, we're trying to get onto. Uh, obviously, we haven't got there yet. Um, we, we cannot say, if you plant a tree, you, you save so many lives. But... Um, over a large population, over a large area, you can start say, uh, taking some statistics and saying, yes, if you have so many trees, then people will live longer, the quality of life will be higher, and the health will be much better. And quite honestly, that's one of the things we're aiming for, uh, to be able to state uh, trees are clearly good for your health, in independently of all the problems that they may cause, which they do as well. We are not, we're not blind to that. The Barcelona Tree Master Plan is one example of how the assessment of nature-based solutions can be carried out in practice. While the municipality of Barcelona focuses more on the environmental impact of its tree master plan and has collected mostly quantitative data to assess progress, the Food for Good initiative in Utrecht concentrates mainly on the social impact. Hans Pigels, who initiated and coordinates the project, introduces Food for Good in his own words. Food for Good is a combination of a community garden in a public space, public park in Utrecht, and that's combined with a, with a care farm. So a care farm and community gardening are combined in this uh, 
in this public space. And the meaning is that we mix a lot of different people. The people in a garden will be really a reflection of society. So uh, we have elderly people with dementia, unemployed youngsters, uh, people from prison, and also high educated uh, volunteers of uh, students from abroad. And they all work together like, like one group. And that's, uh, that's really special about uh, Food for Good. For Hans, the monitoring and assessment of the impact of such initiatives is difficult. He sees some challenges in the evaluation of his measures. Let me see where, where to start. Uh, well, um, impact measurement is always based on uh, assumptions some, somewhere. In the process, you make assumptions and that makes it very hard to determine if the benefit someone has comes from the intervention you did. And uh, we did it with all kinds of surveys with well-being. And then you see that the effects are very good. But it's also very doubtful if you have a good representation of uh, all the people who, who filled in a survey form. If you want to do it really well, I think the best way, and when it's about well-being for people, then uh, measurement should be with observations. But that's unaffordable to do. So uh, it's very difficult to... Uh, to have a very easy way of impact measuring. So we had a lot of discussions about that uh, with the government, but also with ourselves. And then the best way we thought to do it is just to hold surveys with people in, in the beginning and, uh, and after half a year or three months and even a year and see how they grow on the well-being scale. We find a lot of good results, but every time when you're ask people to fill something in, they are happy to do that. And mostly the, the people who, who feel well, they, they fill in those forms. We never publish the results of the impact measurement. It's not really profound enough. And, and the only thing I think when you really want to do a good impact measurement, you have to do it by observation. Just see how people develop uh, over time and how they come in and how scared they are or whatever and how they grow and develop and you, over time. We cannot afford that kind of uh, impact measurement. As we see, measuring social impacts and collecting qualitative data in particular can prove difficult and be expensive. Hans reports that they mainly collected data via surveys conducted among the people involved in the project. But even here, there are small barriers that need to be taken into account. The results were never published, in part because they were not thought to be representative. To convince other people of the impact of his project, Hans prefers to rely on personal stories of individuals involved in Food for Good. Yeah, just tell the stories and show people and let them feel what happens in the garden. And what I found out when I want to to tell the story about Food for Good, when I want to... uh, uh, explain them what happens, what the benefits are. Uh, then I, I, I tell them uh, sto- stories which people told me, Some sometimes a few uh, sentences or a video or some pictures. And the best way to do is that by bringing people to the garden. And then uh, some, that happens sometimes when people come in, they want to hire the place for uh, some kind of meeting and they come in like uh, in suits or very serious and then they go out happy and surprised and connected. 
So that's uh, that's the effect of the garden. And it's difficult to measure in numbers. I'm not sure. Sometimes we even found out that a lot of people use this impact measurement to make some kind of business case, but then especially to persuade people with money to invest in their organization. So because it's so easy to manipulate uh, the assumptions you made, it's a big challenge, impact measurement. That's my conclusion. <laughs> These two examples from Barcelona and Utrecht show that there are many aspects which need to be considered when assessing nature-based solutions. The monitoring and evaluation is important. Without question, its results form an important basis for decision-making. However, there are many challenges and practical considerations around the question of whether and how an evaluation should be carried out. These vary according to the needs and aims of a particular project. Different approaches are required to assess social, environmental and economic impacts, and these need different, often complex and elaborate, financial, time and resource investments. These investments are, however, incredibly valuable when it comes to learning about how to effectively design and implement a nature-based solution to achieve the desired impacts and to scale up such solutions to be implemented more widely. This podcast is created as part of Naturevation, an EU-funded Horizon 2020 research project focusing on urban nature-based innovation. If you're interested in learning more about the assessment of nature-based solutions, you can find more information and relevant resources under the Assessment section of the Naturevation project website. Furthermore, the Urban Nature online course contains an entire module dedicated to this topic. You can find the corresponding links in the show notes. But besides the monitoring and assessment of nature-based solutions, what else plays an important role in their successful implementation? In the next episode, we'll focus on governance aspects. In other words, how can policy, management and governance strategies influence the implementation of nature-based solutions? Listen to the next episode to learn more about the world of urban nature. Take care and until next time.